Bill Nye the Science Guy. Is it Bill Nye the Science Guy? <laughs> it looks like him, doesn't it? It does totally look like him. <laughs> yeah, not that you just really. said that, I'm like, wait a second, is it's that really him? I cannot imagine it is really him. I haven't looked into <laughs> it. I didn't come up with the trivia, and I'm sure <laughs> as I was looking around for some trivia, that would have been the first thing I found. <laughs> All Chariots right. of Fire, 1981. Uh, his name is Harold <clears throat> Abrahams, and he's played by Ben Cross. Okay. All right, let's redo that intro. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Tarowski. And I'm Todd Mack. How are you doing, Todd? I am well. I'm really looking forward to talking about this, which is one of my most favorite movies. Well, this week, listeners, we are talking about Eric Little and Harold Abrahams from Chariots of Fire, a classic film. 1981, which is the, the year I was born. Oh, you, you beat me by, is it a month? When's your birthday? Uh, yes, it's a uh, one month. A one month. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm 82. Yes. You old man. I know. <laughs> I, my bones are creaking. <laughs> uh, so, uh, spoiler-free synopsis, listeners, if you are unfamiliar with Chariots of Fire, this is the story of several British runners who overcome myriad obstacles on their way to competing in the 1924 Olympics in uh, in running, in, in track is there. Uh, I guess it said runners. So yeah, I believe I believe we call that <laughs> athletics in this film. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Are you ready to get your kit on and talk about this time? Yes, I'm ready with my kit. <laughs> I guess I said uh British, but uh we do also get some fantastic Scottish accents in the film. Yes. Uh so yeah, a lot of the United Kingdom gets covered in this. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, where you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist, where over 180,000 titles to choose from await you for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. And you know what, Todd? I, uh, what? I think we might be going under in the 180,000. I say, I know it says over, but I've heard another podcast say over 200,000 titles, so uh, we might need to update our numbers there. Okay. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of books. Yeah, more than you could listen to in your free time. Yes. I'm comfortable saying that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Todd, how did you uh how did you come to Chariots of Fire? When did you first know of this film? Uh we had a we had a recorded T V recorded version of this on VHS uh when I was a kid and I watched it lots and lots of times. <laughs> it's uh which was it was kind of funny for me to watch this on. It was kind of like a, my experience with Hoosiers, where uh, there were but there were whole scenes, like a, quite a few scenes on the DVD that I had never seen before. Um, I was like, "Wait, I like this. This is a cool part uh, that I'd never seen before." So because it was just edited for time from the television. Yeah, I'm sure it was edited for time on the on the television. Yeah, gotta get those commercials in. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is a film that I know I watched it when I was younger because of my dad. My dad ran track in college and so he naturally loved this film i didn't know that <laughs> when he came out yeah a track scholarship oh, that's awesome yeah uh and so at some point because of his recommendations and then also my own interest in in running i did some track and cross country back in the day that's where we met todd yes you may recall uh i, I watched this film several times in my adolescence <laughs> i watched this on many uh like friday night to get psyched up for my saturday races uh, yeah, and uh, it also had a, 
a, a score, a theme song that we would sometimes sing on our cross country runs, which you would say, how can you sing a score? But Todd, could you give us a sample of how you sing this score? <laughs> Like that. Yes. Uh, and so we're on a long run, like an hour long run with our cross country team. Someone would start doing that and uh, a lot of people would kick in because this was yeah. a, a great movie for runners to watch. Yeah, you felt like you were running on the beach in your, uh, in your kit. In your kit. <laughs> <laughs> in your kit. I'd also just like to say that when I was a kid, the, the best part about this film was that not only was it like a great sports movie and great to get, ex- uh, get psyched up for your uh, cross country meet the next day, it's also a great Sunday movie and uh, it counted <laughs> in, my, in my quite religious uh, household as a Sunday movie. So I got to watch it on Sundays and that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I have a little bit of trivia about this film. This is one of those films that is uh, based on or inspired by a true story, but (laughs) an awful lot of the details. I'm not even going to try and list all of the details. Um, I will just say one of the main major plot points of this film is that uh, Eric Little actually ran on Sunday. Well, no. Oh, good. Uh, but but like in, in the film, it's like as he is traveling to the Olympics, he find, he's a deeply re- religious man, and he finds out that uh, the trials for one of his races are on Sunday. And like at the Olympics, they try and negotiate a way around this, and then another athlete uh, you know, volunteers, and they switch races, and he runs in a race that isn't his race, uh, just so that he won't run on Sunday. Um, in reality, they had like months and months of planning for that and knew all about it, and he had been training for this other race for basically months in the lead up to the Olympics. <laughs> But he was not a favorite in that race that he switched to. But yeah. it was not a shock to anyone. He was not a favorite, and he did win that race. Yes. It just wasn't because he switched the day before to honor the And Sunday. that race was not on Sunday. Yes. He did not so race on Sunday. So all the, all the main points are all in place. And uh, one of the characters uh, – so there's this group of runners that are in the movie, and not all of them. Like, one of them, it's a different name, and it's kind of a composite of a couple other runners because some people didn't want to be involved with the film. It's just a lot of the specifics are off. But the general okay. aspects of the story uh, – are there unlike some of the other based on true story films that we may talk about (laughs) (laughs) um and then the uh the only other major point on trivia that i wanted to make sure we covered is that this film was nominated for seven academy awards and it won four of them it won for best picture best adapted screenplay uh best score and also best costuming really yeah (laughs) it seems like it seemed like uh I don't know. Like that wouldn't like the costuming for this wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, it is a bit of a period piece. <laughs> it's, I yeah, mean, but it's not like Elizabethan period piece costuming. Yeah. So I guess maybe just the the you know were they really accurate and going back to the you know uh, how many sixty years earlier? Sure. Can you explain for me what uh, what best adapted screenplay means? Oh, did I say adapted? I meant original. I'm sorry. So in the screenplay category, uh, there is. Uh, best adapted. I'm pretty sure this one was, was original, which is you're adapting an existing work. An original is you've written the script yourself. So let me get an original. So you're adapting an original, uh, somebody else's. You get, uh, so with adapted, it's a remake of a movie. No, adapted means, yeah, this one was original. So no one had written this story before. It was based on true events, but they wrote this story for this. Best adapted is usually you're adapting a stage play a or, novel. or a novel. Oh, okay. I got it. Yeah. I got it. If I said okay. adapted, I'm sorry. This is best original screen. You did say adapted initially, but. All's well that ends well. Yes. And uh, I just wanted to give a 
recognition, little shout out for uh, the best original score was by a man who goes by the name Vangelis. Yes. He will come up. <laughs> yes. Dun, 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 dun. Van, I mean, Vangelis is famous. He did, uh, he did uh, Blade Runner, which is really famous. Oh, yeah. he's, he's done a lot. <laughs> he did a lot of 80s stuff. I think, I think Vangelis did um, Lady Hawk. Let me uh, see if I can check the recesses of my mind real quick. No, I've got, I'm not seeing uh, Lady Hawk on No, there. Lady Hawk. No. Nope. Stranger Than Fiction? Wait, what? Vangelis is a composer and performer who, perform, who works almost exclusively with electronic instruments. No, he did Known not for... do Stranger Than Fiction. Known for Collateral, Madagascar, Bruce Almighty, and Stranger Than Fiction. I'm not seeing that on his discography. Maybe they didn't release. I'm on Vangelis. In the recesses of your mind? In IMDb. <laughs> oh, I'm on I'm in Wikipedia. It's, I guess it's not in his discography, but maybe they didn't release a soundtrack for it then. Huh. Yeah, when we talked in uh, Hoosiers. Hoosiers. <laughs> uh, about, Did he do Hoosiers? No, but when we talked about the 1980s oh. music that dated that... <laughs> There's uh, a little bit of that in some of the music to this film, where there's just heavy synthesizers, and it just feels... Are you sure he didn't do the music for Hoosiers? I'm not sure. Uh, I don't trust the recess in my mind at the moment. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I feel like he maybe did. Okay. Well, while you you check that, well, I'm going to try and pronounce his name, why he goes by Vangelis. He is uh, uh, Greek, and his full name is... Evan, Evangelos Odysseus Papathanasio. <laughs> and I, am I sure bet you did that perfectly. <laughs> that was accurate. That was totally <laughs> Any uh, word on the Hoosiers front? Hoosiers. Oh, it's Goldsmith. Dumb. Oh, right. It's Jerry Goldsmith. We talked about that. Sorry. For that yes. Episode. Okay. I'm sorry. Well, before we get to the full summary of the film, Todd, do you have uh, something our listeners could do to help us out a little bit? Uh, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I would like to talk to you about another Amazon product that has been life-changing for me. You will recall that uh, in a recent podcast, I talked about Aquanotes. Today, I'm here to talk to you about Mihaz 660 Professional Nail Clipper. These are the best nail clippers on the market, apparently. <laughs> they are really good, and they are extremely sharp. And if you've ever been frustrated by your nail clippers just not not cutting the mustard, as we say, uh, these these do. They cut all of the mustard and your fingernails really, really well. Uh, they cost uh, $8.48. No, $9.14. $9.14, uh, prime shipping available, and you will not regret purchasing the Mihaz 660 Professional Nail Clipper. This thing is glorious. It is in my backpack all the time. Because you never need, you never know when uh, when you're going to need to clip a nail Todd, or that, two. Oh, this is it. I was just going to say, Todd, that was a really great ad read, but could you tell our listeners where they should purchase that so that it actually will benefit us a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> I will. Uh, if you are interested in the Mihaz 660 Professional Nail Clipper, uh, go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And then you will uh, you will be able to purchase anything on Amazon that you want. You can look up the Mihaz 660, or we'll just have a link in our show notes, and you can click on that link, and it will take you right where you need to go to purchase this glorious, glorious uh, nail clipper. And don't limit yourself just to those nail clippers, listeners. Anything on Amazon that you've been thinking of impulse buying, now is the time. All right, Todd, will you hit us with a full summary of this fantastic film? I will. 
1978, and we're at a funeral in London. It's the funeral of Harold Abrahams. Uh, the speaker tells the congregation that there are just him and Aubrey Montague who are left who can close our eyes and remember those few young men with hope in our hearts and wings on our heels. Uh, now we cut back to 1924. Uh, the British track team runs along the beach while the iconic Vangelis soundtrack pounds in the background. Pum, 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 pum. Uh, and then uh, a much younger Aubrey Montague uh, writes a letter. Uh, it's just one week before the Olympic Games, and Aubrey's telling his parents about how he and his team got there. Now we flashback again, so this is a flashback inside of a flashback, <laughs> to, uh, to 1919. Aubrey arrives at Cambridge to study. He meets another young man uh, there called Harold Abrahams. Uh, they find that they have running in common. <laughs> Aubrey tells Harold he can't stand losing. What about uh, – he says, I, I can't stand losing. What about you? To which Harold replies, I don't know. I never have. <laughs> uh, it's just after World War One, and these young men have all – it seems to me that they've just missed out on, on fighting in the war. Like they're just the, the generation, like the younger brothers of soldiers who would have fought in World War I. Um, and England, who has suffered uh, much, needs a chance for her boys to find glory. Uh, Harold – has a total chip on his shoulder because of the fact that he's Jewish. Uh, the young men all sign up for a variety of clubs at Cambridge. Um, this is Harold and Aubrey and a couple of other their friends. Uh, but the most important for them is athletics, which in the in the I think in the United States we call track, but in England do they call it athletics? Or in 1919 did they did everybody call it athletics? You keep going. I'm going to look into this. <laughs> Uh, Harold makes a challenge for a, a thing called the College Dash, which nobody has ever accomplished in over 700 years. It's a timed race around a courtyard. So uh, a bell rings, uh, it strikes 12, and then you have to run all the way around the courtyard before it's done with its, uh, its 12th chime. Nobody's done it in over 700 years. Uh, just as he's about to attempt the dash, another runner jumps in. His name is called uh, Sir uh, Andy Lindsay, Lord Andy Lindsay. He's a lord. Uh, and he jumps in the race, and they both just run like mad. And Harold beats uh, the clock, and Andy, it looks like he falls just barely, barely short. But they are both really fast. Uh, now we shift to the Highlands of Scotland, where we meet a devout Christian athlete named Eric Little. Uh, he wants to run. Um, his friend Sandy wants him to run. His uh, sister, Jenny, wants him to go to China to be a missionary. Uh, we watch Eric win a race with more glorious Vangelis uh, music. Um, Sandy tells Eric that if he runs, he will be a messenger for God. And Eric's father, who's a minister, also tells Eric that he can run in God's name and that this will be good and kind of a substitute for uh, missionary service. Uh, Eric continues to run, and he gives church meetings after his races. It's all uh, really inspiring stuff. Uh, meanwhile, in Cambridge, Harold is just eaten up inside by what he perceives as this uh, racism around him. Um, he's patriotic, and he's also really... Uh, ambitious. He tells Aubrey, I'm going to take them on, all of them, one by one, and run them off their feet. Now we get some great sequences of Harold training, uh, racing, and winning. Um, and then he goes to watch Eric Little, the Scotsman, uh, run a race against the French. And there's this world-famous coach there called Sam Musabini. This is Sam Musabini, who is played by Ian Holm, also known as Bilbo Baggins. Um, the original Bilbo Baggins, not the new Bilbo Baggins. So uh, they watch Eric race. During this race, Eric is knocked down, but he gets up and catches everyone to win the race. This is uh, maybe my favorite race of this whole film. Uh, really, I think this is really going to be like – was this the second week in a row? But just another reference to the uh, coming back from the depths of hell. 
yes uh, online <laughs> clip we will have that in the show notes uh, just just <laughs> Type, listeners, type in the words, come back from the depths of hell and watch the Irish uh, athletics it's video that comes amazing, up. Amazing, amazing. Uh, so Harold is shocked at what he sees in just kind of this drive um, and determination by Eric. Uh, and now he becomes driven to beat uh, Little. And so he asks Musabini to train him. Musabini says he will watch him and decide. And now we're going to take a short pause from this long synopsis to get an update on what the differences between athletics and tr- track. Okay. Uh, so this is all coming from Wikipedia where I found this information. Uh, the word athletics is derived from an ancient Greek game uh, or, or term that was meant to describe kind of all athletic contests. But then in the 19th century in Europe and particularly in the UK, it narrowed its definition down to just walking, running, jumping and throwing events. So track and field. But in North America or in the U.S., athletics is still used in the more general term to kind of refer to all sporting endeavors. So in the U.K., they call it athletics. In the U.S., we call it track and field. Yes. And in the okay. U.K., athletics is specifically those events of, you know, racing. Of, of Perfect. Um, but here, athletics maintains that more general, everything kind of sporty. Thank you. Everything kind of sporty. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the actual definition I just found right there. <laughs> Harold kind of sporty. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, Harold meets a pretty girl named Sybil. Uh, she's an actress and a, and a famous singer. He takes her to dinner. Uh, they fall in love. He tells her running is an addiction. It's his weapon against being Jewish. She says people just don't care about that kind of stuff. Um, now we jump forward. It's 1923, so a few, couple of years have passed. Uh, Eric travels to England to race against Harold, and he beats Harold in the 100-meter dash. Harold is crushed. He tells Sybil that he's going to quit. He's going to take his ball and go home. He says, if I can't win, I won't run. And she tells him, if you don't run, you can't win. And then he asks her, what do I aim for? And she says, beating him the next time. <laughs> and then just then, uh, Musabini, this uh, 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 Bilbo Baggins, the coach, arrives and agrees to train Harold. Uh, he tells Abrahams that Eric Little is actually a better longer-distance runner and that Harold can beat Eric in the 100 meters. Uh, we get more Vangelis, more training. It's this cool kind of Rocky Four thing with uh, Harold training with Musabini in the city and Eric training largely alone or with his friend Sandy in the Scottish Highlands. Uh, then one day Eric arrives late for church. His sister Jenny is mad at him. She thinks he's lost his focus on God. He tells her that he will go back to China to be a missionary, but he has to run first. And he tells her, <clears throat> God made me for a purpose for China. <laughs> But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That and is that's, uh, uh, not the first time I've heard you say those words in that accent, Todd. That's just about the, that's just about the part where I start crying. Uh, now Sybil is worried because Harold is totally obsessed with running. Andy, uh, Lindsay, helps to calm her down saying it will be over when the Olympics end. Uh, Harold is accused by the headmaster of sullying the college's reputation by taking a personal coach. Harold assures him that he is a Cambridge man and an Englishman. Uh, then Harold's friends tell him that they have all been accepted to the Olympics. Uh, Eric Little is included on that Olympic team. As the athletes are getting on the boat, a journalist asks Eric how he thinks he will do in the qualifying heats on Sunday. This is a shock to Eric, who is a devout Christian and will not run on Sundays. Uh, Sybil comes to wish Harold a safe journey on, uh, on the boat. And she tells him she understands, and he's um, pretty happy about that. Then uh, Eric is tormented by the thought of running on Sunday, and he tells the Olympic organizer that he won't do it. Uh, This man tells Eric to wait, uh, that he will talk to the French and see if they will shift his heat. 
now we see the feared Americans, Charlie Paddock and Jackson Schultz, the fastest men alive. We get some more training than the opening ceremony. Uh, a bit more modest affair than we will probably see in Rio this summer. If we will see it in Rio this summer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> starting to have my doubts. <laughs> Certainly a more modest ceremony than we saw in London. Uh, or China. China was a Or a few years ooh. ago. Yes. <laughs> this is uh, a couple of marching band, uh, a marching band and some uh, bag bagpipes and some people walking around a track solemnly. Um, uh, the first race that we see is Andy in the 300 meter hurdles and he's beaten by an American. Those Americans. <laughs> uh, at a party that night, the Prince of Wales requests a meeting with Eric. It turns out to be uh, kind of a... <laughs> Uh, an ambush where a bunch of bigwigs want to persuade him to run on Sunday. Eric refuses. It looks like he's not going to be able to run and everybody's frustrated. But then Andy Lindsay comes in and offers to let Eric run in his 400 meter race instead of the 100 meter race that he was going to. And then they all agree that this is a good idea. And uh, now it's uh, Sunday. There's a big crowd at church to hear Eric speak. And then the same day, Harold runs his 100 meter race uh, against the American Schultz and he loses. And uh, Montague loses his steeple race chase. Steeple, uh, I'm sorry. Montague loses his steeplechase race <laughs> <laughs> to an American as well. Um, so Sunday was not a great day for the uh, the British. Uh, Harold, as you can imagine, is beside himself for having lost in his. It was just a like a qualifying heat, so he's gonna get another shot at it. Um, but he pulls himself together, and then uh, he wins his 100-meter gold medal, and he's very excited about that. Now it's Eric's turn. Uh, the American in his race uh, thinks he's got it all sewn up because Little is really a 100-meters guy. Uh, but then the other American, Schultz, tells his compatriot, be wary because Little has something to prove. It's personal for him. And then he runs over to Eric, and he gives him a note reminding him that the Bible says, he who honors me, I will honor. Or he who honors God, God will honor. Uh, and then Eric's sister Jenny shows up at the race to see him, and then the gun goes off, and we get more sweet music and a voiceover of all of Eric's uh, most awesomest quotes from the uh, from the film. And we hear him again say, "Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose, but He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure." Uh, he wins the race. We get lots of music, lots of celebration. The boys return home victorious. Sybil is there to give uh, Harold a welcome home kiss, and he can now move on with his life. Now we go all the way back to the funeral that where we were at the beginning of the film, and one of the old men says, well, he did it. He ran them off their feet. And then we get more music, more running on the beach, and credits. Big sigh. The end. Lots of cheering. Lots of cheering. Lots of, uh, yeah. It's good. great. So... That's what I got for you. Great summary, Todd. Thank you. That was a. It's a long film. It's over two hours, right? It's, yes. And that was a quick summary because there's a lot of slow motion running <laughs> in this film. It condenses of, very quickly. Uh, Vangelis definitely earned his paycheck with this film. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. And I, I kind of jokingly said it feels very '80s, but I still enjoy watching this film. And yeah, see, so you were all over. Part. You were all over Jerry Goldsmith's uh, score for Hoosiers, <clears throat> but you seem fine with this score of Cherry. I, I wouldn't say I'm fine. I'm mixed on it. Some of the songs feel <laughs> like the main theme song. I love that. And even though it has some of the synthesizer kind of electronic sounds going on, uh, it feels more timeless than of the '80s. But some of the other training montage songs, <laughs> it's it is a uh, pretty. Uh, iconically 80s sounding. But that's, I mean, what's wrong with iconically 80s? It's, uh, so some, some film scores are timeless, right? They, they, it doesn't yes. mark it. And this, 
And other film scores, they will deliberately mark it of an era by, like, if you're doing a historical film set in the, you know, uh, 70s, you go back sure. to 70s. This one, it's a 1920s film that has, in some elements, a heavily 80s score, and there's a little bit of a disconnect that, for me, does something weird to the film. Okay. All right. To, e- to each his own. You said this is one of your favorite films. What is it specifically about this film that puts it up into that tier for you? I think the contrast... Uh, this is this is the kind of film that my mother would call a character study, I think. And it, it's just the contrast between uh, Harold Abrahams and Eric Little and the fact that they are so different, but yet you find yourself cheering for both of them. Uh, I think is really interesting. I like Eric Little as a character, just as a as a as a character and as a human being. Um, when he's uh, when the all these bigwigs are putting pressure on him to try to get him to to move on his decision to not run on Sunday. Um, just the his like calm and his refusal to accept they're telling him you're not a patriot if you don't do this thing that we want you to do and he says no actually i do love my country but you're not going to get me to budge on this um i think it's really i don't know it's it's cool i like it yeah uh i I like a lot and i think this film does some really interesting things in how it uh portrays religion because both uh little and abraham's are running largely because of, you know, uh, religious reasons and uh, seeing it as a form of glorifying God. Uh, but they're they also have very different sort of with Abraham, yeah, I, right? I, I, I think he's very much motivated by the anti-Semitism, and you know, there's this, uh, I, I mean, pro of pro aspect of his faith, you know, positive portrayal of his faith, faith getting out there. Is is part of sure, this, yeah. and little is yeah, in the quote that you've <laughs> referenced a few times. <laughs> uh, you know, feels like this is an expression of his love of God to do the most that he can with a gift that he's been given. But it, even though there's yeah. those, it's two different faiths, and in some ways, two different motivations behind those faiths. They intersect in some really interesting ways, and I'm also glad that. Uh, and, you know, all the elements that got fictionalized, they didn't put them into the same race to have them race against each other, that y- you can be rooting for both of them and they can both win, uh, without actually being in conflict ever. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm a little bit more, I think that Abraham's is perhaps a more nuanced character than, than little. I, I think that one of the reasons, I don't know, I guess. It's hard for me to to see him as like a purely religious, like his motivations as purely religious. It seems like they're as much personal and like social mm-hmm. as they are as they are r- religious. Like little is, you know, he, he's all about like about quoting the Bible and having church meetings after his races. And Abraham seems more concerned about the social ramifications of anti-Semitism than he is like to make a religious statement about like the, the, the Hebrew God is the one true God. Does that yes, make sense? but we still get a few comments from other characters on that subject. Like when he does the race, uh, around the, uh, yeah, the, the, the 12, the, yes, the, the challenge, challenge. Uh, someone makes, yes. the, uh, you know, says maybe they are the chosen people. So, I mean, we're still getting references, <laughs> uh, to that. And I mean, it's, 
uh, when we when you talk about anti-Semitism, it's really hard to say what is religious, what is social, what is you know where right. are these prejudices coming from, which element, uh, because it, it. I mean, it's a very complex <laughs> um, identity group. I, I mean, is it ethnic? Is it religious? Uh, well, yes. <laughs> you know, both right. of those is the prejudice because of the ethnic <laughs> or the religious. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I don't know that we can fully separate it out, but I agree that there's a lot more going on than just this, but he does seem, I think to have a bit of a chip on his shoulder about the anti-Semitism that he feels he faces. Oh, absolutely. It's a, there's absolutely a chip on his shoulder about the anti-Semitism. Uh, I just think that he, in that, you know, if we're to, if we're to say, is his concern with anti-Semitism due to like they're knocking on his religion or they're knocking on him like as a human being and as an Englishman, I think that they I think he's more concerned about like the social and political ramifications of anti-Semitism than he is the religious ramifications okay. of that. I I don't know. I just I don't like. I don't know. It seems it seems like different and more more complicated than what we see. In yeah, I, I agree with that. Where um, whether you want to say that Abraham's is is more complex, or um, that little is just kind of given this one note to perform. <laughs> uh, I I agree with the you know the point that's being made here. One thing that I wanted to uh, bring up when I was looking up some stuff about this, I came across this interview with Vangelis about the film and the interview is from 2012, but he's talking about why he thinks, uh, this score and this film, uh, are, are still important, uh, in it. And, and here's a quote from him, uh, in this, he says, the story of these runners is full of magnificent and profound messages that we have always needed messages that are even more necessary today. Um, and he mentions that you know, these are the story of men who would not compromise on their values, no matter the cost. And then, uh, again, another direct quote, if you look for truth, you have to be courageous. My main inspiration was the story itself, uh, talking about his music and the rest I did instinctively without thinking about anything else other than to express my feelings with the technological means available to me at the time. Huh. Um, and I like that idea that if you look for truth, you have to be courageous. Uh, and that, you know, that's what he sees as many messages of the film. And I think we really see it in the, in the room with the committee. Like that's, this is the moment that takes courage, uh, for little to be standing up there for what he sees as a larger truth, this truth with a capital T. But I think it's also really interesting going back again to the, the contrast of these two characters, like for little, it is this idea of racing on Sunday is, you know, th this unviable, you know, you, uh, you, you can't do that. Um, but right. at the same time, we have this other character representing a different faith that would have no issue with Sunday <laughs> as a Sabbath day. That is still also, you know, this, you know, driven character because of this identity that he has. Uh, and I think it's just really interesting to see this film kind of allowing both those statements to stand um, at the same time. Yeah. It's certainly one of its uh, strongest points. Another thing just in, Thinking about the the time, the time that this film represents, I love the like the the sportsmanship. <laughs> like they just are, they're all such gentlemen <laughs> about about it all. And even when, even though they're like they hate, I, I mean, Abraham's is just so obsessed with beating everybody 
but they're still like they're all getting dressed in the same room and then they'll go shake hands with each other and it's just like oh man that's really great it's a it's a it's a gentleman's sport and i i remember when i was when i was running in high school and i so i grew up on a in a chair i didn't grow grow up in a cherry orchard <laughs> i grew up in a house that had a cherry orchard and behind our house there was an old farmer named ed and his knees were shot and so i my dad would have me go out and help ed with the irrigation uh and so ed would sit in a garden chair like in a lawn chair and he would point to me where to go and i would i would uh help him with with his jobs on his farm and then we would just sit and talk and i was talking to him about running and i was telling him about how aggressive you know and and kind of you know some of the contact and aggressive things that were going on in high school cross country and he said nah that's just a shame it i remember when running was a gentleman's sport <laughs> and i thought oh i think he was remembering chariots of fire and he was probably that old he was he was he was a very old man when i was a kid now i have a question so. do you think this is an accurate re representation of all of that or do you think there was th this is kind of like the the rosy lens of nostalgia <laughs> I think it was far more. I think it was far more civil in the 1920s than it is today. I'm sure that there was, you know, stuff that happened, and you know, in the heat of like the, the battle, so to speak. But I do think that um, I do think that we've lost a sense of like sportsmanship today that we used to have. Maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's just uh, I think <laughs> there was, it's very easy to look back and say, oh, you know, when things were. X, Y, or Z, whatever it is that, you know, point you're trying to make. And there's probably more going on, uh, within that. I like how you talk about like uh, cross country as though it's this really brutal sport. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hardened fields of cross country. <laughs> well, you know, it's just like yeah. elbows and getting, I you have know, scars. You jostled and, to and tossed around. I, and... I have literal scars yes. from cross country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, but but uh, it's cool to see these these men um, just driven by this uh, desire for what they feel is so important, and it's nice to see the film kind of maintain that balance between the two of them, and and to recognize their differences, uh, and let you appreciate both of them for kind of who they are, and they all get to you know cheer at the end. The peasants rejoice. And <laughs> <laughs> and Vangelis plays his music and, and all, so, is, all is this good. is kind of funny uh, this film and then listeners we're, we're double recording tonight and we're, we're about to also record a podcast about Jane Eyre and for both of them uh, with very British sensibilities in the film and uh, pro-British attitudes <laughs> I actually had searched I'm like what is the British word for jingoism <laughs> and, and Todd do you want to know what the British word is for jingoism it is jingoism uh, no. <laughs> we borrowed it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Really? Appeared in Britain first. Uh, Jingoism being like a very uh, pro-nationalism at the expense of other um, other groups and other nations. What do you, what do you make of the that's Americans? Where was, in that's this? where I was going. Um, they're very clearly like this um, this antagonist, but they're they're even though we're like we're given names and they're called you know oh the fastest man in the world and all these other things. There's still uh, you could almost insert you know, any, anyone else <laughs> It just happened to be, uh, the Americans there. There's not a much, uh, necessarily about them being American. That's what makes them 
villainous. It's just they are probably going to be faster than the British runners. But do you really see them no. as villainous? I mean, I can see a version of this that takes place in the 1940s and going up against you uh-huh. know, Nazis. And those yes. guys are Yeah, villainous. no, they, these are antagonists. But there's... These are just antagonists because they're faster, but they're but they're even like you know pretty good guys. Yeah, I, we how much screen time do they get? Very little screen time uh, for them. So it's not like built up as a major rival, like an individual rivalry. Uh, like uh-huh. I think so much of this film is about yourself, and that's who you're competing against. You're right. you're competing against your uh, temptation to sway from your convictions. Uh, you're competing against. Uh, your, you know, your desire to just throw in the towel and stop because you're not the fastest and you've got to make the choice, uh, to, to keep going. Uh, and so it's not, like you said, um, you know, the United States versus Russia in the film Miracle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rocky, Rocky Four. Four. Uh, I mean, but I mean, I think Miracle is a good counterpoint of a film that is based on a real historical event and has a very specific historical context. And the Russians in that film are portrayed as pretty villainous actually you know not just right uh the next uh person that you have to overcome in order to achieve greatness but there's something uh you know evil or or um you know other to a point that's not just different but problematic <laughs> you know and dangerous uh-huh. in a way and i don't get that from the americans oh. in this film i wonder as i think about this and and compare it hold it up against uh, other famous sports films um, I, I've, I said at the beginning, this is one of my f- most favorite films, mostly because I just love these characters and I love seeing them, uh, fight for what is important to them and, and eventually succeed. Uh, do you see this as an underdog story? I, it's not. No, I, I mean, I don't think of this as an underdog story, <laughs> like the short answer. And I think one of the reasons is that. At the beginning of the film, we're just kind of told over and over how fast these men are. <laughs> and everyone else is in awe right. of them. And then it's kind of as they're heading to the Olympics, we start to hear, well, there's actually people faster. <laughs> um, but it, it's almost like a footnote. And again, I think it's because this isn't the story of them overcoming the Americans. This is the story of these individuals doing the most that they can with the talents that they've been given by God. I think it's a really interesting... It seems like every sports story, in order for it to be a successful sports story, has to be an underdog story. And, I mean, you think about Rudy, you think about Rocky, every Rocky film, he's an underdog. Um, You think about Miracle, you think about some of the basketball films that have come out recently, like Glory Road, or... Slipping my mind right now. I mean, there's just so many sports films that are about the underdog... And this one is nominally about underdogs. I mean, at the end, these guys are not favored in their races. Uh, little because he's not running in the 100, which supposedly is his race. But even at the very beginning, early on in the film, Sam tells uh, Harold that don't worry about, about Little because really the 100 meters isn't his race and he should be running in a, in a better race anyway. So even though the world at the time would have thought that that wasn't his race, it's, we've been, we've been clued in that actually that is his yeah. best race. <laughs> He's exactly where he should be. It's like a Chekhov's, Chekhov's gun. I don't know. Four hundred. Yeah. Chekhov's 400 <laughs> or, or, meters uh, race or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, 
so yeah, I, I I agree with you. It doesn't feel like like a typical underdog story, but is inspiring. I mean, if it was the typical underdog story, you'd open up with the montage of the Americans winning the Olympics. <laughs> You know, they, they, at the previous Olympics, the Americans <laughs> setting all the records and, you know, these British runners watching that footage over and over again and, you know, setting their sights yeah. on this. But that's absolutely not how this film is set up. And you do get some of it, right? I mean, you do get it's, – it's not like it's not – like because we do not an underdog story because you do the get it. running, right, when they're – you see the pictures. Sam is showing him slides. <laughs> they don't even have right. they don't even have film of the Americans running. They just have slide like still images. And he says, "Charlie Paddock, you know, ten point three, and uh, Jackson Schultz ten point four, and you have to you have to like eat, sleep, and drink and breathe these guys' names. And when you close your eyes at night, you need to see them in your dreams. Like you have to be obsessed with beating these guys. So so there is this kind of setup, but." But it also is Harold Abrahams who who did the college dash, you know, the only person in 700 years who's done it. He's the fastest Englishman in 700 years. So it's not like he's Rudy, you know, five foot nothing, 100 or nothing, without a speck of athletic ability. It He's a really, really fast elite runner who goes and beats a bunch of other really fast yeah. elite runners. Um, if we could jump back to one discussion point pre- Underdog yes. story. I'm just talking about like the pro-British nature of this film. And, uh, <laughs> so this was a British film. It was a British made production and it's, it was made in 81, released in 81 and set in the twenties. And I, so, so with a lot of my academic work that I end up doing, I do a lot of new historicist, um, analysis and new historicism is looking at, um, the kind of relationships between stories that are told in the society at the time and how even no matter what the story is being told, if it's being told in, you know, 2005, there's going to be 2005 issues that seep into it. Even if it's, you know, an adaptation of a story from sure. the 1700s or, or something like this. And I think this is one of those examples that has some interesting connections in that, um, you know, where Britain's place was in the world and some of the issues that it was experiencing in the 1920s, post-World War One, pre-World War Two, and then in the 1980s in, you know, the Cold War, where the world is kind of being dominated by U.S. and Russia <laughs> um, in this binary, <laughs> that there is this um, kind of reclamation of British pride in both instances, as I think there's some feeling of fading empire or loss of empire in the 1920s, and uh-huh. um, this dominance, you know, the world defining dominance of the binary of the United States versus Russia. I think there's this, uh, work that's done in the film to kind of reclaim, um, you know, the, the, the pride that every country on, on earth has pride in itself. Uh, and you know, yeah. has forms of nationalism. Uh, America kind of gets this, um, this rap, bad rap of, you know, being the most <laughs> nationalist. There were like, yes, we're too, uh, patriotic. too patriotic, but I'm pretty sure every nation on earth has forms of patriotism, uh, with it, within it, uh, and this love of country. And I think this film, both for the story that's telling from the 1920s and when it's uh, you know, being made in the 1980s is, is, uh, is doing some reclamation of that. Yeah, the 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 scene very early in the film when they're at their first dinner at Cambridge, and Aubrey is writing to his parents. The uh, the headmaster gives this speech in which he tells them uh, he references the war and all of the all of the men who have died, and then he says he says something to the effect of like this is your turn for glory, and you need to find something 
that you can be proud of and then just rocket. He doesn't say just rocket. But... <laughs> he's a bit more formal. But he, you know, he, he's selling really them. Formal British he's selling them. Find you know, find your glory and then and then go after it. And so I think yeah, I think you're I think you're spot on on that. Um, and I think that's also just another layer uh, for these characters. The that we, we've mentioned several times the religious elements, but there is also a heavy nationalist pride <laughs> uh, that that is driving you know their motivations. Uh, and even as we said, maybe Eric Little doesn't have as much. Uh, nuance as Abraham's does, we definitely do also see this other motivation of, of, you know, I love my country <laughs> and, and, uh, I'm not just running for the glory of God. I'm also running for, for Britain. Yeah. I think I mean, just to go back to your, your comment about patriotism and that every country has some form of patriotism. It's interesting there are countries where just the act of being patriotic is can become really problematic, um, and especially places where there's been like a civil war, for example, or like in Spain, where patriotism turned into this really bloody civil war, and now people, I mean, I've I I've absolutely know people who are like, ugh. That whole like patriotism thing, it turned out really <laughs> yeah. bad for us a while ago, and I'm not, I'm just like not ready yeah. to go there, and and it's a it's a far more like conscious thing than I think it is for us who are like, what could possibly be wrong with be wrong with patriotism? And I love my country, and I don't care if the British love their country, like more power to them, and if they think it's the greatest country on earth, that's fine, you know. And and there there are other people who have been through a different set of history, you know, different, different historical timeline. And they go, we should probably be careful about the way that we frame patriotism, but uh, you don't see any of that in, in this film. It's just, it's great (laughs) to be British. Stiff upper lip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You can be British and you, you can be, you can be a Scotsman, you can be Christian, you can be Jewish. It doesn't really matter. Uh, just as long as you're an Englishman first (laughs) and foremost. Uh, do you have any final words on this uh, this film before we wrap um, it up? You know, I, I think this is a film that it probably needs to be, or, or it's high enough quality that more people should see it than probably have today. Uh, I, I get the feeling it's not, uh, even though it's it's a classic by those who discuss it, it's not one of those most widely discussed films out there. <laughs> Outside of the track and track and field and cross country <laughs> <Yeah>. circles. <laughs> Most people aren't watching yeah, this every no, weekend. But uh, I think the music's great. I think the characters are great. I think it has a really good message about um, conviction to yourself uh, and conviction to what matters to you. And I think it's really uh, interesting to see uh, you know individuals of two different faiths kind of going down that path. And the film yeah. uh, being okay with both of them. <laughs> And so there's, yes. we've said a lot about how this is pro-British and there's a lot of patriotism on display, but I think it's also pro, uh, pro-individuality <laughs> and, and, and um, yeah. being your best self, which isn't going to look the same as anyone else's best self. I think sometimes when you look back at Academy Awards and you see films that won uh, Best Picture, you think, uh, <laughs> I wonder if they would go back and, and, you know, make a different choice today. This is a great film, and I don't think it falls in that camp. This is a gr- this is a well made film. Um, it's well acted. It's well written. 
uh, I think it's pretty well paced for even as long as it is. Um, it's, I, it's a, I don't know, it's a really, really good film, and I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and I agree with you. I think more people should pick this up and watch it. Um, and they won't here real quick. We've got a, a tiny bit of extra time. Uh, we're not going long. So, uh, do you want to know the other films that were nominated for best picture in, uh, that were released in 1981? Uh, yes. yeah. Chariots of fire, which one Atlantic city yes. on golden mm. pond reds. I think I have, wait, uh, who's on in golden on golden pond, pond has Henry Fonda. Um, let's see. And Catherine Hepburn. I feel like I've seen so. it. It has. Oh no, I don't think I've seen it, but I think it has a famous um soundtrack. I, uh, let me. I maybe I can find out who who would have done the soundtrack. It's not Vangelis. Who's <laughs> <laughs> the only eighties? Uh, the only 80s, Well, I guess Jerry Oldsmith too. No, uh, but I think we had a. Uh, we had a. My mom had a uh, an album when we were growing up and it was called Cinemagic maybe. And it had all these awesome, uh, scores from films. And I think one of them was on Golden Bond. Okay. I've never uh, seen Reds. It. Have you ever heard of it? It's a Warren Beatty nope. one, uh, about an American journalist. The only Warren Beatty film I know is, uh, oh. <laughs> Heaven Can Wait. Is he in that? Uh, I'm not, not sure. Um, Heaven can wait. Okay. Warren Beatty, yes. Uh, That's a great film. We should do that I've one I've never sometime. seen that one. It's pretty funny. Uh, so Reds, uh, <laughs> and then Atlantic City, which I mentioned is, uh, it's a, again, Wikipedia here, 1980 French-Canadian romantic crime film. <laughs> I'm intrigued with that. Huh. But what other film? The one that you may have actually heard of. In fact, I know you have. And seen. The other film nominated in 1981, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Wow. I picked Jerry. I picked Jerry. Oh, yeah. It's a fire yeah. over Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I think that that's a that would be a pretty controversial <laughs> pick. I know, uh, I know a lot of people that would pick uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark over. So I, of I've fire. heard. Uh, I think I mean, I've heard this in various places at this point, but I think I, the first place I heard it just to give you know provenance for the idea. Uh, I think it was on a Bill Simmons podcast. So he said the Academy Awards. Ideally, uh, there's so many reasons this would never happen, but we'll wait five years and look back and say this was the best film of that year. <laughs> yeah, that would be um, pretty cool because. Sometimes something wins, and you look back in five years, and you're like, no one has talked about that film since that year, and there's another film <laughs> that is still, you know, just, you know, on constant replay on cable channels, and people still watch and discuss. Yeah. I think you and I, so you and I would both pick Chariots of Fire, but do you think the Academy would pick Chariots of Fire? I think so. Over oh, Raiders of the yes. Lost Ark? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Academy, I, I, today, Raiders of the Lost Ark would really? not get nominated. The only reason it might get nominated is because of the backlash after The Dark Knight didn't get nominated, and everyone said the Academy's too snooty. They they opened up the number of films that can be nominated to 10 instead of 5, <laughs> which is just so that they can put in a popular film in there. Uh, but when you look back, okay. uh, Star Wars was nominated for Best Picture. Raiders of the Lost Ark was the Best Picture. But then in the 90s, it got uh, those kind of more popular films stopped getting nominated for best pictures. Okay. I just, I, I know that, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is like cherished by a lot of people and considered to be one of the greatest action films of all yeah, time. Yeah. But the Academy today so, doesn't nominate action films. Eh, okay. I, yeah. You're right. Okay. You got anything else? Uh, no, I think that's going to wrap us up. Okay. Well, um, thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review there. Uh, it helps our listenership. 
uh, immensely, and it helps us feel good about ourselves. Uh, links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows, and you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter, at protagonistpod. Uh, I'm at Todd K. Mack, and uh, he is at J... <laughs> <laughs> At Jay Dorowski, our producer, Andrew, we didn't even mention, is not here with us tonight. First uh, recording we've had without first, him. First, yes, 74, 75 episodes in. And uh, this is the first time that the that our team has not been together. Uh, but Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. If you like this show and would like to support us financially, uh, there are a few different ways you can do that. If you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation uh, for us with a monetary donation, you can click the support link on our homepage, or you can go to patreon.com slash protagonist. And uh, you can also support us by uh, making any purchases at Amazon at protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And don't forget to pick up your nail clippers. <laughs> <laughs> they are fantastic. And we'll have a link to those in the show notes. Uh, and finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30 day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. He's much older than Bill Nye, I think. I mean, Bill Nye's not a spring chicken. Um, okay. Well, oh, I guess that guy was playing a college guy in 81. Yeah, Bill he's... Nye was, um, Bill Nye was instructing us in our elementary school days. He's 19... He was born in 1947. When was Bill Nye born? <laughs> I feel like we should be doing this on that podcast, but... Uh, Bill Nye was born in 1955. He's only 60. Oh, okay. All right. He is Wait, pretty old. And how, he, how, he really how, actually does look right, like how, <laughs> how much is that age difference, though, between those two? <laughs> Eight years. Eight years? Okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. We will definitely have to mention Bill Dye in the, uh, okay. in the real thing. Okay, here's the real intro now.